Frida Love Smith is a quitter. She's been a lot of things in her life so far, a drummer in a number of acclaimed indie rock bands, including The Blake Babies and The Mysteries of Life, an author of two memoirs, and a parent of two children. In January 2021, as the pandemic raged on and violence erupted at the U.S. Capitol, Smith started a series of what she calls quitting experiments, temporarily giving up everything she used in a habitual to-get-by way, first alcohol, then sugar, followed by cannabis, caffeine, and social media. Then she kept quitting, beyond even what she expected. She quit her job and her musical career as a drummer. She also started something and finished it. A book about her experiences called I Quit Everything, how one woman's addiction to quitting helped her confront bad habits and embrace midlife. This week on Interstates, WFIU's David Brent Johnson in conversation with Frida Love Smith. Coming up after this. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and I'm going to turn it right over to David Brent Johnson, who's talking with Frida Love Smith about her book, I Quit Everything. I think I just wanted to start by talking about the epigraph that you have in the book, which resonated with me because it's from the Bad News Bears movie, which I loved as a kid and have thought about over the years. You quote... Walter Matthau's character, Coach Morris Buttermaker, this quitting thing. It's a hard habit to break once you start. And I wanted to ask you what led you to make this decision to quit these various habits in succession. And did you know from the start that it was going to be an experience that you would turn into a book? Yeah, right. And I mean, I think to kind of answer the last question first, when you're a writer, you're always thinking like, oh, maybe this could be a book. So it's it's always in the back of my head, just that possibility or, you know, or at least this is a thing I could write about. So I don't think I started specifically with that intention. I think I started much more from a place of being pretty fed up, exhausted, really stressed out and just tired of myself. And I really needed something to change. So it was definitely that moment that I describe in the book of you know, feeling overwhelmed by the political moment and the cultural moment. I talk a little bit in, in, about the January 6 riots and the preceding months of COVID, of stress and isolation and just all the change that was kind of foisted on us. And and my habits, like like a lot of other people's, had turned kind of unhealthy, you know, just sort of coping mechanisms and drinking in particular. Like that was really the catalyst for this whole thing was just my reflecting on my drinking habits and how something that I had turned to to sort of soften the harshness of life and the difficulty of those months, something that I had turned to as maybe kind of a positive thing or a little treat at the end of the day had really become a negative thing, had really become something that was not making me happier, not making me feel better, but making me feel worse, making me maybe even less capable of coping. So yeah, so the culmin I mean the the instigation of it all was a moment, a low moment, I would say. Yeah, you uh, you talk in the book early on uh, about how much alcohol sales rose uh, yeah. in the year of 2020, which is when the pandemic begins. Early in that year, March of 2020 is when everybody goes into lockdown, goes into a very isolated state of existence, a very different and stressful uh, form of existence. And then that all kind of builds up to uh, the riots of January 6, 2021. And that and COVID are kind of a backdrop to the book in a way, which I thought was was very interesting. Yeah, it really was a, a, a backdrop, and it, it was a catalyst, I think, for the whole experiment. And and I think that COVID in itself kind of forced us all into an experiment or into a lot of different kinds of experiments. Um, you know, what what would it be like to have to do your job from home, to not be able to leave your house? Or if you had to go and do a job, to do it behind plexiglass or in shifts or in these various forms of isolation, um, what would it be to homeschool your kids, for everybody to homeschool their kids all of a sudden, overnight. Um, so I feel like there were all of these forced experiments going on and that for me and maybe for other people, it, it might have opened up an opportunity to attempt some more intentional 
experiments. Right. So you kind of use this cataclysmic moment as a, as an, you kind of turn it into an opportunity, it seems like, for yourself. So you decided to give up alcohol, but did you decide from the outset that you were going to give up one thing after another, or was it mm. kind of a chain reaction that developed organically? It developed pretty quickly. Once I decided to quit alcohol, and I made a very like decisive um, decision <laughs> to do that. But in doing that, it, it instantly made me reflect on my life as a whole and my days and how I was getting through the days and the amount of caffeine that I needed to survive and um, how I was not eating as well as I had before. I was eating a lot of sugar. Um, it made me think about my kind of recent cannabis habit and how I was also like leaning on that really hard. And so I just I just kind of took a step back. Oh, and social media also that being at home, being kind of stuck in front of my computer, I was going on automatic a lot of the time and just clicking over to Facebook, pulling out my phone, scrolling through Instagram, really not a lot of intention behind it, really not a lot of joy in it. Um, so I think the decision to quit alcohol just made me examine all of these habits. And I can be a little bit of an extreme person sometimes. I write about that in the book. And so it's kind of appealing to me. And it was appealing to me in the moment just to think like, I'm giving all of it up. I'm just going to quit all of it. So that was a kind of a, a grand moment. But then I immediately reflected on the fact that like it was actually going to be physically and mentally challenging to do this. And I knew myself and I knew that in the past attempts to go cold turkey, to give things up, it, it hasn't always been successful for me. And so I, I just kind of kept thinking it through. I also like to make plans. I like to kind of figure things out, plan things out. And so I thought, okay, I will do this this grand dramatic thing, but I'll do it somewhat gradually. I'll do it incrementally. I'll give up alcohol first. That I thought that would be the hardest. It turns out it wasn't, but I thought it would be. And in some ways it was the most defining and most complicated substance that I had to quit. But I knew I needed to tackle that first. And then I just made a schedule. You know, I basically dropped one thing every month and, and stuck to that. You know, once I planned it out, it wasn't that hard to stick to it. Was your intent when you started to quit these things permanently or were you challenging yourself to give them up for a while? For a while. That was my intention. And, and I did get the idea from this dry January movement, which wasn't something that I'd ever engaged with, but I was aware of it. People who give up drinking for the month of January as a reset, kind of a fresh start for the new year, which I, I think is like just a, a temporary way to take a break and get a little bit of perspective. And I think some people come out of that pursuing sobriety. Some people come out of it just going back to the way that they used to drink. Some people just kind of reconsider their habits and maybe make small changes. So it was January when I started. So there were people posting about, about dry January. There were people posting very mockingly about it too when on January 6th. And I, and I mentioned this in the book when Rebecca Mackay tweets like, how's that dry January going? Because I think it was a moment when many people were turning to the consolation of, of drink or some, some substance. Um, but yeah, so I was kind of aware of this concept of taking a temporary break and just seeing what happened. So I felt open. I wasn't really sure if I was quitting alcohol forever. I didn't think so. But I wanted to be open-minded about it and experimental about it. I really wanted to experiment on myself and just see what see what happened without being too rigid and without planning an outcome. There's something else that informs this book, and it's it's the loss of your friend Faith. You yes. dedicated the book to her, and I wanted to ask you about the ways in which losing her, this very close friend of yours, around this same, I think it was around this, the time of the book, how that, how that informed informed it. Yeah, she, she's really woven through there. And she was an amazing person, um, uh, Faith Kleppinger, someone that I played music with, someone that I corresponded with. She was a wonderful writer. She got very sick right as the p pandemic was kicking in. And so I feel like her her illness and her decline and her death, like all of this was happening in the same timeline. And so it was, you know, just this this painful restriction of not being able to go and see her, not being able to be with her, 
not being able to go and mourn her and at the same time not having my usual forms of of consolation or numbing or coping to kind of help me get through it so it it in a strange way, it got really interwoven into the story. And and so many people were going through things like this. I mean, I actually lost a couple of family members as well during the pandemic, not to COVID, but just the the normal kinds of, of grieving and being together, celebration, like all of this was so altered and so kind of yanked away from all of us. Um, and, and Faith's loss, really represented that to me, just like the restriction, the limitation, the loss. Yeah, and and all of this grief and and dealing yes. with it at a time when you've also decided to challenge yourself to to give up all of the things that one by one that that many people use to kind of help mollify the effects. Absolutely. Of and that I always had and that I would have been like, oh my God, I've, I need a whiskey. Like I need a couple of whiskeys. This is just too much and I need to feel a little bit less. And so it was very raw having no way to numb that, just having to feel my way through it. Coming up, the first time Frida got sober. This is music from the Sunshine Boys, the last band she performed in before she quit drumming. The song is called Underwater. We'll be right back. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're listening to a conversation our own David Brent Johnson had with Frida Love Smith about her book, I Quit Everything. The first time Smith got sober, she was 20. At the time, she thought she was too young to be an alcoholic, but she'd already spent quite a few years growing up in a time and a place, southern Indiana in the 1970s and early 80s, and a popular culture that helped set the course for her pursuit of consciousness-altering behavior. And your book talks about how you very early on became acquainted with these various substances and ways of, of modifying your feelings, making you feel like somebody else. When you undertake this task in the spring, the very early spring, late winter of 2021, at that point, you're in your mid-50s. Right. And you've, your book documents sort of a, a history of of using various substances since your early teens, really. So you're, you're turning away from 35 years off and on of, of having these things in your life that you're, you're kind of putting away these chemical tools yeah. that you've been using. And I wanted to ask you about how this kind of goes all the way back to growing up in Bloomington, Indiana in the 1970s and into the early 80s, uh, a period when the culture was very loose, as yes. you talk about in the book. A lot of kids had parents, not all kids, but a lot of kids, uh, your your situation is one, had parents who were in one way or another very permissive or maybe not present necessarily. Yeah. And there's also kind of an ongoing afterglow or hangover, or either one you want to use both from the 1960s yeah. of this, this cultural embrace, this countercultural embrace of drugs, including alcohol. People often refer to them separately, but alcohol is a is a drug too. Yep. And you're growing up all around this. How did that shape you as a person? It was really formative. I mean, just that, that time period imprinted on me so deeply. I think a positive aspect of it, growing up in Bloomington in that time period and growing up around just different alternative communities was I did feel like I had a very expansive understanding of what a life could be like that you know I had friends who had very traditional families nuclear families went to church this is southern indiana and there were like a lot of conservative people around then and I had you know I had friends like that and but I had friends who had grown up on communes you know there were still some active communes like Needmore um, and things like that around here back in the um, in the late 60s and early 70s and so I saw like okay that's another way that you can live a life and raise a family um, I saw single parents I saw people that were academics. I saw people that were very working class. I'm really grateful for that. Like it, it definitely, it gave me a kind of openness that has been really helpful to me, really valuable to me as a parent, as a person, you know, grew up around a lot of musicians and artists as well. So I think that 
when I look back on that, I mostly see positives. But there were definitely some challenges to to the kind of permissive parenting or almost sort of, you know, a largely benignly negligent parenting that that a lot of us experienced. And so I think, you know, there was this idea of the wise child. I talk about it in the book that I think was a real cultural phenomenon of like of a kid that grows up really fast and that almost relates to their parent like another adult or like a friend. And I think it can be complicated. And I think it can, you know, definitely, yeah, it can raise challenges. And I think having maybe having that early exposure to to drugs, to alcohol, to parties, it normalized it in a way for me that maybe has been something that I've had to to trouble, to question a little bit. Like maybe it's not, you know, normal or great, or maybe it's not appropriate for everyone to kind of to party to that extent, to turn to substances to that event, or to have to have um, substances so interwoven into just the normal fabric of life. Right. I remember, you know, I, I grew up in a, a fairly, my household was, you know, it was a pretty conventional household. And I came down to Bloomington and was, uh, as a teenager, started dating a teenager who had grown up in Bloomington and and we smoked marijuana with her mother one right. evening in the living room. <laughs> right. I was just, I was like, wow, this is not, <laughs> this yeah. is a whole different kind of uh, a cultural realm than yes. what I was used to. And I thought it was kind of cool. But also part of me is like, is this really appropriate or just right. kind of weird? I had kind of an ambivalent, you know, feeling about it. Yeah. Ambivalent's a good, a good word for it because it's like you're, you're kind of looking to the adults in your life to help you create boundaries to create you know parameters and and to find where your limitations are and so it can be confusing if they don't really seem to have those <laughs> right right or they just have a different value system yeah. where this is a this is an acceptable custom you yeah know? but it's yeah. it's a it was it was a very different I think kind of uh, generational experience to have maybe than some of the generations that followed when when sort of the just say no ideology took hold yes. in the 80s uh, and and I, I think subsequent generations had a had a, a less perm- there was a less permissive attitude about it than maybe what you were experiencing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there definitely was a cultural shift that happened with just say no, um, and I'm I'm glad that that I got to live through some of that that era of more openness. You know, even though I think that is complicated and there are downsides, I'm still kind of grateful for it. And I don't necessarily think, necessarily think like, oh, that's terrible. You shouldn't smoke pot with your kids. I actually wouldn't. I haven't. Um, done that, but I don't judge it. And I think it was really coming from a cultural moment and a desire to not be a hypocrite, right? To And to be honest and to be a human in front of your kid. There's so much about that that I actually appreciate and value. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot to sort out there yeah. From, <laughs> yeah. from a, a 70s childhood. Definitely. Um, you also talk a lot early on in the book about these pop culture influences yes. that really shaped you. You, in fact, I I think you devote entire uh, chapters, short chapters, but chapters to several different movies that had a, a big impact on you, particularly with alcohol. Yes, you talk about the Bad News Bears, mm-hmm. where there's a lot of beer drinking, including the kids. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, you talk about Arthur, which celebrates this, you know, rich charming young playboy who's an alcoholic totally yeah 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 yeah. uh there's a wonderful description of you going to see that movie alone at Mm. the old village theater in bloomington and just how taken you were with it you do a great job of kind of looking back at it more critically 40 years on but you're seeing it as a 13 year old or however old you were at the time and it's shaping you yes and then later on when you're kind of approaching the cusp of your 20s or in your teens reading the works of novelist Charles Bukowski, seeing the movie Barfly, which is based on a screenplay or a book of his. And uh, I, I just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about how the how those movies shaped who you became as a person. Yeah, absolutely. I think as I was quitting alcohol and feeling a bit of an identity crisis, I think I, I title one of the chapters, you know, I, I drink not, therefore I am not, because I just felt like it was just so entrenched in me and who I who I was, that I was inspired to explore that a little bit. It felt like detective work, just trying to figure out like, okay, why do I have this relationship to alcohol? Why do I define myself as a drinker so so deeply? I, I think sometimes when people are trying to understand themselves better, there's a there's a psychological 
impulse to look at your family dynamics, to look at those and or to look at, you know, other relationships that were really formative and influential. And, and I felt like I did that, but I kind of did that through the lens of movies. That kind of gave me a way to access my childhood and to access some of the familial and peer influences that I had. And it was a fun way to do it. And I was watching a ton of movies during the pandemic, too. So I just feel like it was very much in my mind. And it felt like a fun kind of research, sort of me search to do. So definitely that the Bad News Bears, Bugsy Malone era that I get into, I do feel like there was something so liberatory about that moment in children's media culture that it's, you know, a child didn't have to be this perfect, you know, obedient, well-behaved little mini adult, but that, you know, childhood could be this kind of wilder, more creative, more fun thing. And there, there was, I don't know, there was a lot of freedom in that. And it was really appealing to me. Um, but at the same time, you could let a kid be a kid, but it's also like letting a kid operate in an adult world. And also, I feel like the sense that, and I write about this with, with Bad News Bears, that pretty much all of the adults are irredeemably corrupt. And, and this seems like a really 70s thing, too, of just you know, the way that people were so disenchanted with government and with the structures of our culture. And there just seemed to be so much corruption, so much disappointment. And so it was a little bit like, well, the the children are actually the ones that have more integrity. I definitely remember that from the milieu of the 70s. Yeah. I mean, I remember thinking that even though my parents pretty much had it together as right. parents in the 70s, just looking around the whole landscape that, yeah, that adults were corrupt. Yes. It was all kind of a carryover, too, of Catcher in the Rye in some oh, ways. Yeah. Of like, you know, yeah. that, that to enter the adult world is basically to, to become corrupt or whatever. And yes. That, yeah, that, and that the children are, are almost having to run the show at times, too, yeah. because the adults are so kind of lost in this – after all of this – chaotic upheaval of the 60s, which was good, which was much needed, right? To overturn all of these kind of horrible things that have been baked into our society in terms of race, gender, and all these other things. But everybody's kind of like wandering around in this blasted cultural landscape. And the kids are like, hey, what's, you know, what's going on here? Definitely. We have to kind of uh, figure things out for ourselves. Yeah, I think so. And and a lot of these movies were also, you know, post-Watergate um, and so I think that there was that kind of disenchantment as well with the adult world. So, as I mean, as a kid, I really I picked up on that. It's just like, oh, it's like it can be cool to be a kid. And with the Bad News Bears, I was so drawn to the freedom that the children have, that there really is like just this realm, this world of children that's a better world. It's a better place. Um, it's freer. It's um, more sincere. And I, I also liked how... These movies, and especially Bad News Bears, like really take childhood seriously in a way, too. I actually think if you watch that movie, a lot of the music is adapted from the opera Carmen. And so there are all these themes from Carmen, like the Toreador song. There's like a riff on that. And it's it's played for comedic effect because it's these you know this terrible baseball team and they're you know dropping balls and are fumbling all over the place and it's this heroic music playing, but I I feel like there's a subtler message there too that it's like no like when you're a kid a baseball game is everything, it's the stakes are high, and it's something that we can we can take seriously and there is like a, a heroism um, in that in that film. And so I feel like that that music kind of captures a lot of like what I love about that movie that it's like it's funny but it's also it's really serious treating sugar as a drug, treating caffeine as a drug on par with alcohol and cannabis. It wasn't something that I thought that much about going into the experiment, but as I was writing the book and and especially in retrospect, something I think about a lot is that the drugs that we're addicted to, that that we consume, we tend to think are kind of okay, and the drugs that other people do that are, you know, we tend to think, oh, that's dangerous. And especially, you know, in terms of like hard drugs, so to speak, like cocaine or heroin. And, and I wanted to kind of level that all out and just to be like, no, these are all drugs. They are addictive. Maybe some can potentially have more dangerous outcomes than others. But one thing that really surprised me 
in the book was in reading um, like Dr. Carl Hart's research. He um, is the author of uh, Drug Use for Grownups, and which is a recent book. And he he writes that only like 10 to 30 percent of like heroin and methamphetamine users are actually addicted. And that actually surprised me. I mean, I've always thought I had a pretty open mind about about drug use, but I just assumed like pretty much everyone who uses heroin is addicted to it. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it was just kind of helpful to to turn down the volume on kind of demonizing other people's drugs or certain kinds of drugs and to to say like, hey, 90% of the adult world is addicted to caffeine. And yeah, that's a pretty safe drug, you know, and it's it's cheap and it's easily available. It also maybe, ha- it also has some health benefits and all that, but still on a certain level, I think it's kind of helpful to just realize like we are all addicted to drugs and maybe that can help us to have empathy for people who are struggling with drugs that can be more damaging and be more dangerous, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. It's funny, too, because I, I don't think I realized for a long time, but TV is even kind of like a drug, too. And yes. I, I remember I realized that at some point I was like, this is something like you just turn on a button and there's something to divert you to take exactly. your mind off whatever you've been thinking. Yeah. About. And there's a dopamine hit as well. And and to kind of jump back to Saturday morning cartoons, I definitely think that the feeling that feels like a very modern um, sensation of being on social media and feeling left out or feeling inadequate, feeling less beautiful, feeling less fabulous. I got a taste of that with those Saturday morning cartoons and especially with the commercials of the lifestyle that was depicted and the kids and the foods that everyone else seemed to be allowed to eat. But I wasn't, you know, so that kind of missing out feeling or, um, yes, just like slightly inferior feeling. So I don't know. I think that there's a real line of connection there for me. Yeah, that, and because that was also kind of the flip side for you of having this sort of hippie-ish countercultural yeah. mother who was permissive in some ways, but on the other hand was like making you whole grain, natural peanut butter exactly. sandwiches to take to school that yeah. you're like not not thrilled by, right? When you're like, no. I just want a bowl of Captain Crunch. Yeah, I don't exactly. want a carrot or whatever. You know? Yeah, everyone else is bringing bologna sandwiches and I have these, these grainy, mushy peanut things that were just, yeah, just these weird grainy hippie lunches that definitely made me different in a way that I now very much appreciate, but very much did not appreciate at the time. And you're not, you're no. like, no, this is awful. No, I just wanted to be normal, whatever that meant. Punished? Right. What, what have I done? Why can't I enjoy what everybody else gets to enjoy? Yeah, you know, also you, you grew up at a time too, and this may still be the case today too, but I think especially in the, the 70s and the 80s, all of these musical and rock and roll kind of cultural influences yeah. that, that you and I both absorbed and grew up with, that drugs and alcohol are totally enmeshed in that culture. Completely. They are celebrated in that culture. They are a staple of that culture. Was that also an influence on you? Yeah, I mean, a lot. I mean, one of the bands that I write about um, in particular is The Replacements, who are just, you know, still one of my favorite bands, a lifelong favorite band of mine. And I think in the book I call them the the Bukowski of, of bands because they're um, – you know, I think they show the dark side of it as well, but especially seeing them live during a certain period of time. And what would this be? I mean, the Bob Stinson years when he was literally passing a bottle of whiskey around the club. And and it was just so wild and expansive and over the top and celebratory and communal and just all of these like very positive, wonderful things. But at the same time, they were poisoning themselves and and it was destructive too, but it was the um, just that expansive wildness, that sense of connection between the band and the audience, you know, again, like literally passing a bottle through the audience. And then, of course, just the music. I mean, just it was so beautiful the way they would sing about heartbreak and pain, but in a way that that was so soaring and inspiring and moving and they definitely made intoxication, drunkenness seem like this beautiful artistic statement. Yeah, very Dionysian yeah. kind of. Uh, and, and I mean, I, again, this goes obviously back to the 60s again and bands like The Doors and The Beatles yeah. that are all kind of 
uh, celebrating in one way or another this expansion of consciousness, yes. but also just this kind of uh, – the, the notion that that it's a good thing to get messed up chemically in one way or another yes. that, it, that it's freeing somehow yeah um yeah. and it frees you from these cultural restrictions but obviously with the nature of substances being what it what they are that a lot of people end up in end up being restricted or confined exactly. by their the dependence that they end up developing with these with yeah, these yeah that's right it's like you kind of go so far to the extreme that you and you know of of freedom and openness that you come out on the other side into a very restricted place. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's that danger for sure. But I believed and I still believe that it is really positive to experience different states, that it's important, that it's it's part of a full life. And so whether you achieve that through yoga and meditation or through chemicals that alter your consciousness, like I think it's valuable. I think it's, it's important. And I, I always have and I always will. But I just think that what that looks like is really different from person to person. And I respect that. And it's not a good idea for some people to, to drink at all. And some people really can't and shouldn't. Maybe some people can, can play with it and dance with it safely. But it's something that it's risky. But the risk is, is maybe part of the benefit well, yeah, and also I, I should probably say too that it's you know the the that the idea of the intertwining of substance use and artistic pursuit goes right. way way back before the nineteen sixties and you know Baudelaire and 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 you know the, the the French poet who wrote poems celebrating opium and exactly uh, and other writers who who wrote about it. Thomas De Quincey, yeah, who wrote yeah. Confessions of an Opium Eater. Right, I mean, there's, there's a long tradition of the intertwining of creative exploration and, uh, y- you know, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and the Kublai Khan poem that was inspired by an opium dream and things like that. So this is this is you know there are deep roots. There are it's, deep roots, and I, I do I do think that people get stuck in ruts of certain ways of being and certain ways of thinking, and it's valuable to break out of it. But you know, with my book and with my experiment. The rut that I needed to break out of was actually one of too much intoxication. So I think that, you know, on any path, it's possible to just get kind of stuck in your your patterns of behavior and that it's it's really beneficial to take a break and to take a step back and just take a look, you know, at your at your life and your situation and the way that you're that you're approaching it. I think that drugs can help to break you out of ruts, but then I think drugs can also dig you into a rut. We've been talking a lot about the the seventies and the early eighties, but your your initial kind of confrontation with being in a kind of rut dates back to the the late nineteen eighties. Yeah. At a time when recovery culture has really emerged. Alcoholics Anonymous had been around since the mid nineteen thirties, I think. Narcotics Anonymous, I believe, began in the mid nineteen fifties. But it was really it seems like it was really the early 80s when when they started to become more prominent in the culture. Well, you even had people, we've been talking about artists, you have artists like Lou Reed, right? A guy who wrote a song for the Velvet Underground called Heroin. Yes. <laughs> and who was a notorious speed user throughout the 1970s is suddenly embracing AA, is suddenly embracing sobriety. Uh, in the 80s, there's a whole kind of just a conservative turn in the culture in That's general, right. the the rise of the just say no movement, and all these things. So by the late 80s, when you're, I think, at the very end of your teens and in the book, you talk about what led to your first decision to say, I've got to stop drinking and I don't think I should drink again. Yes. No, things had gotten really bad. I was young. I was 20 um, when I got sober the first time. And it was a culmination of a couple of years of hard drinking. So I, I, yeah, I left Indiana when I was 18 and moved to Boston. I was very young and immediately started playing music, started the Blake Babies very quickly after moving there and was gigging in bars even though I was you know, young. I was a teenager. So I got very caught up in the culture of bars in the the practice of getting together with friends and drinking like that that was my social life my social life was drinking which i think is not uncommon at that age and i just found that whereas i saw people around me that were able to somewhat moderate themselves that didn't always end every night you know passed out or sick and the next day just feeling like they wanted to die it seemed like there were people around me that had a little bit more of a handle on it i wasn't one of them like i just I never seemed to be able to stop myself at a reasonable point. It always seemed like I wanted a little bit more, no matter how much I had. I talk in the book about some of the work of, of anthropologist 
Gregory Bateson and his idea of optima and maxima. And maxima is just this idea that more is better, more is better. And that's how I was in my late teens and early 20s. There just could never be enough. And not surprisingly, I did a lot of damage to my health. And so by, you know, by the time I got to this very low point, what do they call it in AA, just like bottoming out, hitting the bottom, I was drinking almost a fifth of whiskey a day. And after one bad night, I couldn't stop throwing up and there was blood and I, I was just in pain. I went to the hospital and ended up being admitted into rehab from there um, after a conversation with the doctor where she's, she asked, do you, have, do you have control over alcohol? Which was an interesting question and, and an easy one to answer. I said, no, I, you know, it has control over me. Oh, but she asked me, like, do you think you're an alcoholic? And I'm like, oh, I'm too young to be an alcoholic, which was really weird. I don't know. I guess I thought an alcoholic is an old guy. <laughs> yeah, an like, old man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Or Charles Bukowski. Exactly. Right, or somebody, exactly. Right. That's yeah. not me. I'm a yeah. you know, 20-year-old woman. But at any rate, I was admitted, and I feel that that saved my life, that that was a, a, a crucial intervention. I needed to completely quit, and I did, and I went to meetings for a while, and I found them tremendously helpful, really supportive, and interesting, too. A lot of the content of AA, and you know, I think I mentioned earlier, like, I'm a planner. I kind of, I'm drawn to programs, and so... There was much about it that I found helpful and attractive, but I drifted away from it after a couple of years. And and that was completely against a lot of the messaging of AA, which is just that if, if you are an alcoholic, you always will be, and you never, you cannot safely drink. And so I... I, I dig into that a little bit into the book because it's something that I'm still like, huh, it's weird. I mean, am I or am I not? I feel like I I drink very, very moderately now. So I don't think I am. Is it possible that I was one then? Well, I sure looked like one and I sure behaved like one. I, I guess I'm starting to think it's not quite so simple for everybody. Coming up, quitting addictive habits leads to quitting a job, quitting a lifetime artistic pursuit, and does quitting everything mean quitting quitting? We've got more music from Smith's final band, The Sunshine Boys. This is Keep It Right Where You Need It. I'm Alex Chambers. This is Interstates. In January 2021, Frida Love Smith, a musician, writer, and academic advisor, decided to quit, one by one, a variety of substances that she developed strong reliances upon—alcohol, sugar, caffeine, cannabis, and social media. WFIU's David Brent Johnson spoke with her about her quitting experiments and her memoir, I Quit Everything, How One Woman's Addiction to Quitting Helped Her Confront Bad Habits and Embrace Midlife. Although I Quit Everything offers a nuanced view of substance usage and addiction, Smith emphasizes that it's not a rebuke of recovery programs or the concept of recovery, citing her own experiences with Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, when I was completely sober for those years, Alcoholics Anonymous was an incredible resource. I loved meetings and I found them super helpful. And I have many, many friends who are in the program and for whom it's a total lifeline. I, I think it's great. I really admire that work. Um, Bill W., the big book, like I, I think there's there's tremendous value there. I just also think that there's space for other approaches with substances and even other approaches to sobriety. So you gave up alcohol, sugar, cannabis, caffeine, social media. What were the hardest ones to give up? Alcohol was the most difficult personally, just because I had such a long relationship with it. And it had very much been built into my life. It was hard to let go of more psychologically than physically. I didn't have a a lot of physical withdrawal from alcohol. I had a little bit. I had a little bit. But it was more just the sense of self, the kind of loss of sense of self that I experienced in taking a break from that, that was really hard. 
but it, it didn't remotely compare physically to my withdrawal from caffeine, which was catastrophic. Like, I, and I don't, it's not like this for everybody. Like, I think some physiologies are more sensitive to it, and I definitely like much more sensitive, which is part of the problem to begin with, you know, that I had to get my dosage just exactly right, and the timing had to be right. And um, yeah, just like a strange, delicate constitution when it comes to caffeine. And so quitting it was devastating. I, you know, I, I did some research before. I had attempted to quit it before and had successfully maybe a couple of times. But, you know, I would read articles like, oh, you might have a headache for a few days. Um, that was such a lie. I, I, you know, I was nauseated. I got sick. I had blinding headaches for days and honestly, you know, felt like I like I was very, very ill for weeks and I couldn't think straight for months. It was so extreme. Michael Pollan writes about caffeine. He had similar experiences where it was a lot harder, a lot more intense and took a lot longer than expected to like really be free of it. And so, I mean, subsequently, it's the only thing I quit permanently because that was such a traumatic experience that I thought, well, I'll never have the strength to go through that again. I'll never be able to do it again. And so I stayed quit of all things, <laughs> on caffeine. Interesting that that's the one thing that you have stayed yeah. away from yeah. uh, permanently or ongoing or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, you describe your withdrawals from each of these things, yeah. and they're not – they're very up and down. Yes. You describe the positives, the upsides, the clarity you gain and from no longer uh, ingesting certain things. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, there are dividends that you describe. Absolutely. Um, how did you – persevere through the most miserable stretches. <laughs> How did just, you get through those? You know, just trying to keep myself busy with other things, having really fun books to read that were that were engaging, definitely watching a lot of movies, doing yoga, taking walks. So just, yeah, just trying to kind of fill the time with other things. In some ways, it was helpful to be restricted and a little bit locked down for, for some of it, especially in quitting alcohol. You know, the bars were closed or, you know, we couldn't really go out. I wasn't playing gigs. And so there wasn't as much temptation. So I, I benefited in some ways from a little bit of a clean slate. And so I just found ways to to fill the time. I also, I, uh, you know, my first book is all about food and it's partly a cookbook. And I'm like, I'm very much a food person. I love to cook. So spending more time like cooking good food and taking care of myself really, really helped me. And and the fact that I quit one thing at a time really helped. And so, you know, I wrote about this in the book, how when I, when I quit alcohol that whole first month, I kind of hit the sugar pretty hard. <laughs> it's like making a lot of cookies, you know, which is definitely, again, I wrote about this, about when you go to an AA meeting, it's like cookies and coffee. You know, these are the substitute drugs that you get. And so I, I kind of operated on that principle of like, OK, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm giving this thing up, but I'll lean a little bit more into this thing. And then and then I gave that up. And so it was this kind of slow process of shedding things. The fact that I didn't do it all at once and, um, you know, didn't do it cold turkey. Let me baby myself a little bit along the way. Smith ended up quitting other things, her job as an academic advisor, and her three-and-a-half-decade career as a drummer, even though she found her band at the time, Sunshine Boys, to be one of the most rewarding musical experiences she'd ever had. Quitting those two things wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't an outcome I was expecting when I set out to conduct the experiment and write the book. But I, I hit a point you know, near the end of the quitting experiment where I felt it a little disappointed. I thought like, oh, like I thought that this was going to be more transformative. I'm like, I quit all of these things, but I, I'm still just, you know, me and I'm still doing this job that I haven't really liked for a couple of years and, you know, still just feeling a little bit stuck and a little bit frustrated. And so, yeah, I think I'd hope to just be this whole new person more than I realized. And I talk about that in relation to the Lucinda Williams song, Change the Locks, where, you know, she starts off in this sort of conventional lyric about, you know, I changed the locks, but, you know, she's broken up with her lover. But then it gets like more and more surreal and she ends like, I changed the name of this town, just this kind of surreal, radical transformation. And that was kind of my theme. And that kind of became a theme in the book where I was like, okay, well, I quit. I can't, you know, I don't need tea anymore, but I'm still not 
living my happiest life. And there's a, like a lot of things I'd like to change. And, and my job was the most obvious one. I had really outgrown it. It was a very hard job to have during the pandemic, especially. And I, I was ready to move on, but I was afraid to. You know, there was a certain amount of security, the fact that I'd been doing it for a long time. I was, you know, relatively good at it. There were some things about it that I liked a lot. So it was scary. It was really scary. But I do think that my experience of giving up, you know, alcohol, weed, sugar, social media, um, and caffeine, that did empower me a little bit to be like, okay, well, I can make changes. I can get out of my ruts. I can change change my habits. And so I think it it inspired me just to take a good hard look at these other aspects of my life, including my job, including my my musical career, you know, which had spanned 36 years at that point. But I'd been feeling like, you know, there's other things I want to do. And so, yeah, just this like this this rush of self-examination of these like major, major things in my life that like I don't think I could have gotten there without having gone through this process of quitting and withdraw and distance and space and reflection. So, yeah, I I quit my job and quit playing music almost in like the same month and right on the heels of quitting all the other stuff. So in, in a way that kind of that gave more weight to the title of the book, too. It's just like, yeah, like I quit these things. But then I also quit these big, major, also very life defining things. Something else you talk about giving up in the book, and it's 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 a different kind of giving up uh-huh. because it's uh, I don't want to I don't want to say that you quit being a mother uh-huh. because it sounds like you just decided to abandon your children, yeah, adults right. that they may now be. But what you're addressing in the book is that you're le- it's more like a letting go yeah. of the role of a parent because both of your sons are now out in the world in one way or another. Yes, and yet this is also occurring at the at the same time. There's a, a hilarious moment in the book where. You talk about how uh, a friend had once told you years and years ago that you'll really know that your children have completely left the nest when they go on their own cell phone uh-huh. plan. <laughs> and you, there's a point in the book where your older son, Jonah, tells you that he's gotten his own cell phone exactly, plan. Exactly, yeah. And you're like, Jonah, you, you <laughs> yeah, made it. This is it. This it's is the moment. It's a wonderful moment. moment. <laughs> yeah. um, but I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about how that kind of played in this whole process, too. That's another surprise from the book because I, I didn't set out to write a book about you know, the empty nest years or about middle age, but I definitely very much landed in that place where I realized like, oh, a lot of what's going on here is this midlife reckoning of realizing that, you know, for these years I've been a drummer, for these years I've been an academic advisor, for these years I've been very habitually using these different substances. And for all these years, like, you know, the care and feeding of children has been uh, this this huge part of my day-to-day life. And, and it isn't anymore. And so, yeah, I, I landed in a place where, where I realized, like, this is very much about my midlife of me thinking, OK, I have been this person. I have done these things. Can I take a moment to think about, OK, well, what do I want these next years to be about? What do I want this next stage? And, and, and is it worth entering this stage, entering these years somewhat deliberately and consciously thinking like, OK, what do I want this next part of my life to be like? And it, it just ended up being incredibly valuable and powerful for me to reflect on that and to not go into it unconsciously, to not go into it on automatic, to not kind of just sleepwalk into this next phase of my life, but to really think think about it as an exciting time and uh, as a time of creative potential and possibility. And so the the chapter called I Quit Motherhood, <laughs> which obviously I don't really, was, you know, kind of a joke, the title itself. But it's also like, yeah, but it's also there's some truth to it where I'm not as occupied with my children while also, of course, loving them as much, you know, as ever. You weren't telling them, Jonah, Henry, don't call me anymore. Exactly. <laughs> We're done, We're done. here. <laughs> yeah. It's been great. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> right from time to time. Uh-huh. Drop me an email. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. This kind of takes us back to the Bad News Bears epigraph of the mm. book. But do you feel like you've now quit quitting? <laughs> or yeah. do you think there may be more quitting down the road? Well, I did just quit biting my fingernails. And it's something that I, I, I do actually mention it in the book really quickly. But um, it's something that I've been trying to do since I was five years old. Um, my grandmother 
gave me this like Tinkerbell manicure kit. It was like this little pink kit with like nail polish. And she gave it to me because she's she noticed that I bit my fingernails. And she's like, you shouldn't do that. That's a terrible habit. And so I was like, okay, yeah, I've got to quit biting my fingernails. I was five. It's like, I've got to quit. But I never succeeded in doing that. But I have recently done that. <laughs> I quit. I quit biting my fingernails. So I think I'm not I'm not through <laughs> with quitting yet. I think that um, I found that quitting is actually like really interesting and really fun and that it can be kind of a playful form of, of self-discovery. So I think I, I think it might be a lifestyle. <laughs> Frida Love Smith's book is I Quit Everything, how one woman's addiction to quitting helped her confront bad habits and embrace midlife. It's published by Agate Publishing's Midway imprint. She spoke with WFIU's David Brent Johnson. And you've been listening to Interstates from the studios of WFIU here in Bloomington, Indiana. The Interstates team is me, Alex Chambers, with Jillian Blackburn, Avi Forrest, and Jay Upshaw. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Special thanks this week to Frida Love-Smith and David Brent Johnson. We're going to end with more music from Frida Love-Smith's final band, Sunshine Boys. This is The Beginning. Until next year, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Single songs are singing.